Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 36 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring interviews with movers and shakers from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we're pleased to feature a very tennis-themed podcast, just in time for the U.S. Open, which starts in a few days here in New York. On our show, Lion Tree CEO Arya Borkov sits down from Wimbledon with the chairman and CEO of the Tennis Channel, Ken Solomon, and John Wertheim, a senior writer and executive editor at Sports Illustrated. So for all our tennis fans out there, enjoy. Thank you for joining us on our latest episode of Kindred Cast. We have a special opportunity here to discuss tennis at the setting of Wimbledon, which is unusual for us to record a podcast in such a glorious setting and talking about tennis as a global sport, whether you're in Roland Garros, obviously, or in Australia or, or Wimbledon or at Flushing Meadows as the U.S. Open it gets underway. And I wanted to introduce our guest today. We have a group here together, a one-two punch of John Wertheim, who is a senior writer and executive editor of Sports Illustrated and a contributor to 60 Minutes and a publisher of some fantastic books, which we'll get into, and also now a movie maker, which we will also talk about. And uh, Ken Solomon, who's the chairman and CEO of the Tennis Channel, which is now part of the Sinclair Broadcast Group, and a longtime media builder of assets and a passionate person of sport and tennis in particular. And then we have a, um, a special guest that I would like to introduce to everybody named Evan Borkoff, who is my uh, 11-year-old son and a similarly passionate sports fanatic and a reader of John's books and a viewer of the Tennis Channel. So it all comes together nicely. Welcome, everybody. Commend Devin on his taste. We're lucky we got him, really. He's very busy. He, he has a packed schedule. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for coming, guys. Thanks for being here. This is like a little family environment, actually. Right? Magic to be Great. here. Absolutely. Um, we want to start talking about tennis, but let's talk about strokes of genius in that context, because you collaborated, both of you, on a film that is available broadly now. I, I downloaded it on iTunes, and I, that's how I watched it. And actually, we're screening it this evening in London with a bunch of friends and clients of the firm. And Strokes of Genius is really commemorating the 2008 famous match of Nadal and Federer at Wimbledon, which is obviously a book that you wrote, John. So why make it into a film? And what should we take away from the film and obviously the story, the narrative behind it? Why is it still recurring and interesting today? Sure, it was 10 years ago that Federer Nadal played this seminal match. So there's a bit of a conceit, but some of this was loosely tied. This is a 10-year anniversary. Federer Nadal still won two, as relevant as ever. But we also thought this was a way into really exploring rivalry and the relationship between, in this case, two athletes who are adversaries but not necessarily enemies. But I think there are a lot of lessons that apply to other sports, apply to politics, apply to to business. This is Camaro versus Mustang and Coke <laughs> versus Pepsi and Apple versus Google. This relationship between these two athletes who are pitted against each other, they both get better. People say, how come they're still playing? How can it be? Roger Federer, 37 years old, is still playing 
Nadal with that physical style, 32, how could it still be? And I say, those are not two separate questions. I think they both are extending the careers of the other one. I think they both motivate the other one. So long story short, we had this book that I'd written 10 years ago. It was a 10-year anniversary. It was a way to celebrate these two remarkable players, but it was also a way to explore the dimensions of rivalry. This is always chaos theory and how something this important and uh, something of this magnitude, certainly for us, comes together. So there were a lot of factors and it would be take up the whole discussion. But it's non-trivial to at least point out that John had written a film for us, which we thought was very important for us up to this point, the most important piece of work that we had produced as a company called Barnstormers, The Birth of Open Tennis. And it's a story that people really didn't know. It was the untold story of what went into the work of the professional tennis players who were vilified by the tennis establishment before you were allowed to play in the majors like Wimbledon as a pro. And you were considered a dirty pro and and the establishment. It's a classic story. And the Rod Labors of the world and the Ken Rosewalls and those that were part of that recognized the importance of this film. And Wimbledon recognized the importance of this film. The All England Club, they actually aired it twice here at the club when we had Robert Redford narrated. Aria, you were a a part of this in a number of ways. And so we sort of said, well, we like doing important stuff. We had done Arthur Ashe. We'd done a lot of things that sort of made a point when you're going to do one of these. And the point here, as John said, was not only those two who are in the ages of time, we shall see where they stand, but it's hard to imagine that they don't stand very close to the top of the mountain and their relationship in particular. But how tennis itself and the uniqueness of it and the universality of it is actually the sport that perhaps you could argue creates the greatest rivalries. And several of them are actually participate in the film, Chris Everett and Martina. They played tens and tens of times. And Ali and Frazier were three. They played over decades against each other. And they're defined by each other. And they're inextricably tied through history. Borg McEnroe, right? And I think before this, there were some people who said, well, that still may be the best one. I don't want to give anything away. Spoiler alert, but John McEnroe's in this film, as is Bjorn Borg, with original footage only recorded for this film, talking about that very thing and identifying Roger and Roth as the greatest. So this is about, in many ways, reaching out far beyond the tennis world. If you're a tennis fan, this is magic for us and we love it. We let it wash over us and it's just a joy to be a part of. The real goal is to show people who don't know which end of a racket to hold, who think that tennis isn't for them, why it's been around so long, why this club, this magic place we're at right now, actually is so special and has endured for so long. There are real reasons for that. And if we can bring those people in through this film and introduce them to what makes this game so magic through these two phenomenal characters as written by John, we'll have done something that's really important and hopefully move the needle. What I like about it and why it speaks to me is actually goes back to the reason that we do this podcast. Because the day-to-day business that we operate at LionTree is obviously a deal business, a transaction business, a business of client development. Everyone's interested in the moment in time of what that transaction could look like and what it means at that moment in time. And the reason why I thought about KindredCast was because I was more interested in where that fits into the broader narrative of where we came from and where we're going through the eyes of individuals, CEOs, executives like yourselves, 
and others. And then as a big chapter of media closes and another one begins, how do we tell that broader story? And that's what kind of resonates with me because about the film, you know, we always look at tournaments and there's a competition and there's a match and we all talk about that match and it's here today, gone tomorrow and some resonate. But then if you could put it into a broader narrative and conversation that have you know, protagonists and antagonists and storylines and nuance and texture, it becomes like a really big part of our lives. And then it becomes creative. It's not just sport. And it's not just an event. And I think tennis in particular, you know, we all search in media for like the live event, the technology proof piece of content. Right. And so live events are a great part of the business. You can't be replicable. You never know what's going to happen. It's interesting, right? You can't predict it exactly. Anything can happen. So one of the reasons why, Evan, you like sports, I think, because it's so interesting to speculate about what could happen and be surprised. But tennis, to me, is a great representative of what the best thing about sport is, which is it's a gladiator sport. You're alone on the court with your mind and your skill set and your weapon, your racket. There's no coach. There's no family. There's no team. You're there, and it's all on you. So how do you think about tennis as, like, the representation of what is best about media and sport and life, et cetera? It's a great fundamental question. I mean, I think there's a great virtue of tennis. The players, famous players, multimillionaire athletes, and they schlep their own bags onto the court. And I always said that's a great <laughs> symbolic act. There's no coaching. My guilty pleasure is UFC, which I'm glad to see Evan is too dignified to like cage <laughs> fighting. But even in UFC, the most violent sport, one out of every three minutes is devoted to encouragement and pats on the back. One out of every five minutes, you get water and someone's giving you instruction. This is completely isolation shame. Andre Agassi says solitary confinement. That's why you have these rivalries. Players aren't switching teams. Players aren't able to, yeah, you know what, I'm going to take a few defensive possessions off or I had an off night. You have an off night in tennis, you're on the next flight out. Mm -hmm. So it is this very personal referendum. But I, I like what you said, too, about, you know, Ali knocks out Frazier and that's it for Joe Frazier. There is a real fluidity to tennis. I mean, this Federer-Nadal, they play this amazing match and... Roger Federer doesn't retire. He's not even injured. He wins the very next major, and the narrative continues. So it all fits into this fluid story. And that's what we do at Tennis Channel is we always say this is a 52-week rolling story. This is a serial. This is a soap opera. It's not scripted. It's not choreographed. That's why Evan likes it. That's why it's DVR-proof. No one wants to watch uh, the results when they know the outcome. You want to see how this unfolds. But I think there are a lot of parallels with media. But I think this notion that it is fluid, there's innovation, there's evolution, but there isn't necessarily death, right? I mean, there isn't, uh, hey, it's season's over and we have to regroup and rebuild the roster. Everything fits into this mosaic and you learn from your mistakes and you remember the plot shifts, but it's this ongoing story. I think that's something that some sports, you lose and you're done. And in team sports, you know, the Golden State Warriors are a great story, but... They shift the team, and that changes things in a way you don't have an individual. Right. Sport. But Ken, you've always talked about beyond just the players that we grew up with or we you know, follow in the limelight, the depth of the roster yes. is what's so interesting, and the diversification and the diversity of the roster and the brands that you can follow no matter what you're interested in, right? Yes. 
It's interesting because tennis has all those attributes that, again, Evan, thank goodness, because if it weren't for him, clearly there'd be no business, loves and that sports fans love. It's real. The ultimate reality show, some people say. That sounds like a besmirchment, but it's actually the true reality of stripping everything away. But tennis, our sort of feeling and argument every day is more so. More because it is the complete responsibility of one person. It is the ultimate meritocracy. You must earn everything you get, every point, every shot, every breath yourself, including walking on and off the court with your bag. It is the ultimate, not only physical test, and boy is it, it's hard to argue that there's any other sport that is more rigorous on the individual athlete. I heard someone was talking about the incredible length of a basketball game the other day, and I thought, these guys are out there in this particular match for almost five hours alone, running and breathing and competing. But we also talk about them asking each other questions. Tennis becomes a language. And the great joy of it for us is that people can watch viscerally what's going on. And it's just a beautiful thing to see athletes, two people competing at a high level who are relatively equally suited. And we study that and we find ways to bring that to life through John and through his compatriots who work for us, who are among the greatest who ever played the game. But it is also that mental aspect. It is chess. It is, that is not working. I have to do something else and I can't ask anyone else's opinion. I have to solve the problem myself out here. And everyone is watching. Someone described it as, to me, to this week as a chest at 125 miles an hour. It's, it <laughs> is. It's boxing without <laughs> With the no blood. <laughs> but Martina does point out, it's also a study in contrasts, this sport, right? It's the only sport where you actually warm up with your partner, you shake hands at the end. When there's a rain delay or when you're in the locker room in the finals, there's only one other person in that locker room. It's your opponent. You're doing it together. Interestingly, it is in some ways so fierce and brutal. And yet there is a net between you and there is no physical contact. That is the essence of what sport is, right? Mm -hmm. Which is it's genuine competition without personal animus of any sort. You are friends. These guys are friends. And to understand how someone can compete so voraciously and yet still have such adulation for your opponent is something that's a lesson that I think we could all learn. Yeah, Evan, say hi to everybody. Hi. Let me ask you a question, Evan. A lot of people my age always talk about tennis as Roger Federer, Nadal, Serena Williams, great players, right? Do you have favorites that are not the big four, as they say, where you actually get like can't wait to see a match from the very beginning and the beginning of a tournament that I want to see these players because I'm really following them because they're younger, they're hungry, and they're your, not your generation, but you can identify with them more? I do sometimes, but... When it's like one of the all-time greats, you kind of want to see them right. play. Right, because you know you're watching something very, very special. Yeah. Do you have any players that you're, you're tracking that you like that are up-and-comers? Anyone that you want to name? Sloane Stevens. Yeah, well, she's obviously uh, hitting it right now, right? Yeah. And also a uh, contributor on Tennis Channel. She was on our air during her... Uh, we, we took full credit when she recovered for having worked for us for about nine that's, months that's on the air. motivation to go back to your day job. But, but I think to, to Evan's point, we're talking very organically about the sport itself. To other fans, it's not about hitting the ball. It's what does this player represent? 
these are brands, these are icons, they're players. People all the time, I love Serena Williams. I've never seen her play tennis, but I love Serena. What do you mean? You, that's what she does. How do you not love it? Well, it's what she stands for. It's how she presents herself. It's what she's wearing. It's her hair. It's everything about her, irrespective of what she's actually doing when she's on the court. And I think yeah. tennis players, I don't know if you see this yourself, but a lot of the affinity that fans have with tennis players is not about, I love how she serves or I love how she competes. It's just, what does this player represent? What do they look like? What are they wearing? How do they project themselves? I think you have that in tennis in a way maybe you don't with other sports. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think before they even know who the player is, just to see what they do and stuff is very special for a bunch of people, but also a bunch of people want to see them play. One of the words that constantly come up in this podcast, the series, is the word affinity that you use, John. And it ties into brands. It's a media term. It's building a brand and then having an affinity with your audience. So that's a function of media, right? You find a piece of content or a brand and then you scale it to a broad audience. And that's what you're talking about, a 360 brand strategy in the way you describe Serena and what she's wearing, et cetera. And, but Evan's saying like you have to make sure that uh, at the end of the day it has to be authentic, right? Because... You know, when you get on that court, it's competition. This is not fun and games. That was the debate sort of dances on the pinhead of the Kornikova story, right? I mean, Anna Kornikova, who was a decent player. She's sort of, everyone says, oh, she couldn't play. She was okay. But she certainly became the icon and used that to a fairly well. And by the way, that's okay when you're a singer, a female singer and all that. And she chose to do that. And But it's interesting, right? Because at the end of the day, people said, well, she's got a brand that's much more outsized than her playing capacity. Today, that balance pretty much needs to be there. There are several players on the tour, male and female, that sort of have big brands because they're box office, if you will. You still want to make sure they can perform, otherwise it gets skinny fast. It's interesting that you ask that question, REA, because we have several core deliverables as Tennis Channel that will never go away. And one of them is that very thing, which is that historically there have been a handful of famous players and then everybody else. And the traditional broadcasters and the way that people were able to receive the sport, which was sort of even at a major, maybe middle weekend and finals weekend, maybe Friday, those broadcasters would pray that they had the stars. Because if they didn't have the stars, they didn't have time to tell you who these other people were. This is actually what we do. The remarkable thing is that every one of the 128 men and women in that draw have a phenomenal story behind them. They have hundreds of people behind them. They have a country behind them and a culture behind them. The Kei Nishikoris, who's now famous in the world, I mean, what he represents to Japan, what Li Na meant to China, what Novak Djokovic has meant to Serbia, even before they're famous, is so important and so entertaining and so inspiring. And the beauty is that once we break through by establishing that brand with the viewer in the United States right now, and hopefully over time outside of the United States, now that we have tennis.com and we have some thoughts about, we've been asked to bring the sport to the world. Jan Kodish in the middle of a Hall of Fame meeting the other day stood up and said, how come we don't have Tennis Channel everywhere? Why can't I get it in Czechoslovakia? I should have brought you in to answer that question. Our job is to illuminate those people because 
An interesting thing happened at Roland Garros. We got our highest rating in history. And it wasn't Roger. He wasn't there. It wasn't Rafa, even though he had a phenomenal... It wasn't Serena. It was Gael Monfils and David Goffin. Why? Because it was a phenomenal match. And they showed who they were. And everyone who saw those two play will never forget who they are. And we'll watch them every time they hear they're going to play again. That's what's so beautiful about the sport. Evan, when you talk about your favorite players, do you really even think about or care if they're from the U.S. or some other country? No, but in other sports you would, but in tennis you don't feel the diversity. You feel like it's normal. Right. You don't feel like it's a unique thing. It's normal for players from different countries to be competing against each other, and you could root for a player no matter where they're from? Yeah. Because, like, Roger Federer, people don't care if he's from a different country. Switzerland, He's right? still, like, the best player of all time. It's yeah. just Roger, right? Yeah. You yeah. know him, right? Do you, you know, you, you have a feeling about Novak, right? You kind of think you know who he is, even though my yeah, kids don't, don't, don't think of the fact that he's Serbian is only a nice accent yeah. as to, you know, sort of in the metaphorical sense. Yeah, I, I, I think it matters where they're from in the way that you talk about passion from a region or a country rooting for their player, just like in the World Cup football or soccer sure. tournaments. And obviously, John, we did an op-ed together about this exact topic, which is that you can look to tennis as a model of what a global political framework and model could look like because it's not about a closed environment and only being uh, you know, focused on where you come from. It's also respecting how that person or that country can play in a global competitive marketplace and may the best person win based on a fair playing field. Yeah, the brand goes everywhere individually for the player and like Evan says, he knows plenty about Roger Federer. It doesn't matter if he isn't from the United States, but the sport goes everywhere too. It's something tennis has to manage. There used to be a lot more events in the U.S. People say, where are all the American tennis players? Well, my question isn't the players, it's the events. There used to be a full slate of tournaments. They'd be at Hilton Head one week and Atlanta the next, and American sports fans had a much easier time connecting with the sport. Now they're in Dubai one week and... Tokyo the next and Melbourne the third, but the sport has done a very good job. It travels well, it embraces technology, and I always say it's like you go to a birthday party and you step on the balloon, the air goes all the way to one side. So people here say, in the United States, what's going on with tennis? It used to be McEnroe and Connors. I knew all the players. I hardly recognize the names. And you say, were you in Romania when Simona Halep got off the plane and there were 30,000 fans there to greet her? Were you in Singapore when they were throwing nine figures at sponsorships to bring events there. I think the athletes travel well, but I think the sport itself travels well, too. This is also... It's, it's of, globalization in its best. Is it's right. a global village and not the Tower of Babel, yes. Another core, core part, certainly of our brand. And our brand ultimately is to try to reflect the best attributes of the sport and let people see them and bring them to light more strongly and more clearly and in a more entertaining fashion on whatever platform you want to enjoy those things. But we look at it not only as Aria, as you say, as the ultimate meritocracy, which makes it in and of itself something very important because of all the things that we talked about that are unique to the game and how it's about you and it is fair and there's no one else to point to. If you win, it's your success. And if you don't, there's nothing stopping you. 
We do things all over the world with children and work with embassies to build courts. We built courts in Cuba. We built courts where there were terrorists that had taken over neighborhoods in Paris with the French ambassador and the French government, U.S. ambassador to France, French government. And everywhere you go, you can talk to kids and say, these lines are the same everywhere in the world. And there is nothing stopping you other than your own desire and hard work from being as good as anybody in the world. And whether it's Serena or you can go down the line of players who have come not from means. They're not country club kids from all over the world. There were Serbian kids who practiced in pools because they didn't have enough tennis courts. This is the ultimate in terms of universality. Players come from everywhere. Unfortunately for the US from the perspective that John's talking about, the world has said, we want a tournament too. And that's why the concentration just isn't as strong here. But there's plenty here. We've got Cincinnati. We've got Indian Wells, which is the second largest tournament in the world in terms of its biggest stadium, only followed by the U.S. Open, which is first. We've got Washington. But we go everywhere in the world every week and yeah. bring the world to us. So every event, every tournament has a different culture to it, a different feel. Wimbledon is you know, classic, the All England Club. It's a very civilized environment, a quiet storm the whole time, right? Roland Garros is just a lot of fun and the French cuisine and everyone's just having a great time. And then obviously Australia, which is the only one I haven't been to. Known as the fun slam. I think it's, a, it's ironic that uh, REA, I don't think Australia's yeah. been ready for REA yet. <laughs> That's the problem. Uh, but talk about the U.S. Open and how the players think about the U.S. Open and coming into New York and... It's a bit bohemian, right, for everybody? Or how do they think? I don't want to put words in their mouth. No, I, I mean, these events tend to take on the characteristics of the city. So I think to a lot of players, they are energized by New York. I think others are, I wouldn't say repulsed, but uh, maybe intimidated. There's a lot of energy. There are night matches. There is a theme of commerce. I mean, they don't have luxury suites at Wimbledon, right? They don't have a huge hospitality village at the Australian Open. I think that it's very New York, both its virtues and its vices. Again, some players absolutely love it and they stay in Midtown and they go running in the park and they like that they can make sweet visits and earn extra income and they like that it's this sprawling late night affair. I think there are other players that prefer something more quiet, but it's really funny how all four of these events, we call them the four Grand Slams and they're always yoked together, but like four players, they're extraordinarily different in how they play out. The players that are repulsed by it are the ones that haven't won yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Because I think, the, right. I think the prevailing feeling I get when I'm at the US Open is if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. There's a sense, yeah, York, right. right? And so the, there's the, a bit of an underlying pressure and challenge. The, the, the traffic right? and the late nights, yeah, exactly. It's, it is absolutely, as you say, a reflection of where you are. And it's not pure jingoism either. I have seen the crowds cheer for Gael Monfils against John Isner, who we love because they love what he stands for, as you guys just said. They love what he's doing. They love the effort. We had, in our earliest years when we took over the U.S. Open, we had Jimmy Connors, who was one of my favorites growing up, and just because he was a regular-sized guy who never gave up and was always coming back. And he dated a Playboy bunny, which I thought was cool at the time. He married her. That's the good news. And she's wonderful. You know, you wanted to be him, but he would talk about the environment. That's it. He would say, this is, you feel the crowd. They're the third person on the court. They give me the energy to go do what I want to do. Everyone always says, which one's the best? They are all magic. But the real magic of the sport is 
It's magic in Indian Wells. It's magic in Miami. It's magic in Madrid. When you go to these places, it's the same thing, maybe a little smaller, different. It is a cultural event that's a week or two long where you can really lose yourself in the dynamic of great live competition combined with everything that's cool about the place that you're at. And that's why it's so fun. And that's what we try to bring every week. Take me uh, forward to a world of strokes of genius, next gen. 10 years from now, you're writing a book, you're showing a film about the new greatest match ever played because nothing stays the same. So who are the players that you guys would love to see break out around the world in the future that 10 years from now, we're talking about them, like we potentially are talking about the next coming of Nadal, Federer, Novak, et cetera. There is the son of oil wealth in Dubai, who's nine years old right now, and she's practicing day and night. And there is another girl who's going to come out of the Chinese Sports Federation, who's been groomed for this since she was six years old using a retinal detection strategy. (laughs) They have global sponsors. They will be playing best of seven four-game sets. This is a sport that, whether it wants to or not, will ultimately innovate. Whoever would have said there's one kid and his uncle's raising him on the Spanish island and he's a righty, but this uncle has an idea to turn him into a lefty. And there's another kid, very middle-class kid, whose parents actually want him to play less tennis, stop his obsession with this sport, and maybe do piano or something just to balance things out. These are the two greatest players of all time. Oh, and on the women's side, there are these two sisters. They're both from uh, Compton. The courts were built with surplus revenue from the 1984 Olympics. Their dad actually conceived them for the express purpose of being tennis stars. Yeah, they're going to be number one and number two on the women's side. Point being, uh, who could possibly predict? I think the next generation will be uh, an outgrowth, a function of this globalization, inevitably. Greatness doesn't send advance invites. Who knows where these play? That's part of the fun. I mean, it could be anything. It could be someone in Lubbock, Texas, and it could be someone in Liechtenstein. I mean, it just... Part of the fun is who the hell knows? There's certainly, as Ken says, there's no barriers to entry. The tennis court that they train on in Sarasota is the same one they're training on in, in India. I suspect the two players who will be the next Federer Nadal will similarly come from unpredictable origins and also be completely dissimilar to each other. Beyond the near horizon we see these kids, and because we're associated with Lindsay Davenport and Tracy Austin and Jim Currier and James Blake, we have access to kids who at least others have identified early. And it's remarkable to see what kids in their preteens and teens are doing now. I have a friend who's a chef in Savannah who has one of the great restaurants in the country. He's an amazing guy, and he called me and said, Ken, I've not really shared this with you, but my daughter plays every day, and he's clocking her serves, and he, the numbers are remarkable. We'll see, you know, what happens. They do come from everywhere. If you look in the near term, I look at someone like Naomi Osaka and what she did in Indian Wells. I mean, she just absolutely walked through the greatest Who, who is a, uh, she uh, plays for Japan. Her one parent is Caribbean and she's based in Florida. We do a lot of self-bashing about the United States. The greatest players in the world tend to migrate to the United States, either to Florida or California. They live here. I take great pride in the fact that a huge population of the best players in the world call the United States home or de facto you. I mean, Maria Sharapova, if you talk to her, she sounds more like a Valley girl than a Russian, right? And she came here when she was nine years old. And that sort of says a lot. But 
I look right now at Madison and Sloan, and I try to just answer that question. I think both of them are remarkable human beings, remarkable human beings, and very different. Sloan is extraordinarily comfortable with herself. She stepped off the bench having been hurt and won the US Open with grace and a great smile. Madison puts tremendous pressure on herself and her talent and power and inner power, if she can harness her confidence, is maybe untold. Will they break through to the next level? Nick Kyrgios right now to me, I just want that guy to straighten it out a little bit because he's box office. And I love the antics. And I love the fact that he doesn't take it too seriously. You can't flaunt authority too much. But here's a guy who is really cool and is exactly what this sport needs and couldn't be more different, right? A guy with a Greek last name that's from Australia that looks like a basketball player, but in the middle of a match will do a tweener for no particular reason. I personally am watching Diego Schwartzman. Uh-huh. <laughs> we love Why could that be? He's the only one I follow on Instagram. Young up-and-comer from Argentina, and uh, he seems like he could be someone very special. I mean, he's number 11 in the world now, right. so it's not a he's hidden five, gem. Six. He's 5'6". He's 5'6". He's short. That's why I identify with and him. And he's <laughs> the only guy who gave Rafa a run for his money in Paris, and yeah. that was quite a dramatic match. And if the rain hadn't come for a while and kind of broken it up, who knows? He could have been the challenger, not I mean, even in the finals. Evan, he shredded his Haftarah. Diego Schwartzman's bar mitzvah, he nailed it. He nailed it. Evan, anyone that you're watching for? Mackenzie McDonald, but he's out. He's out at Wimbledon. He's out at Wimbledon, yeah. He could come back at the US Open. Yeah. Right. How about yours truly? You going to give it a run? Play some tennis? Get better and better? (laughs) (laughs) No barriers to entry. (laughs) You can play for life, too, so that's the good news. Yeah, play with your dad. Bigger picture now, tennis, sport, media, it's all changing. John, you've chosen the best of the bunch, print publications and broadcast television. That has to obviously change, but very strong brands and obviously content always wins out. You've lived through the emergence of cable channels and broadcast and now have like a real passionate following for the tennis channel as part of a broader strategy of you know broadcast and O&Os and retrans, et cetera. You're both part of the gem, which is sport, which, which is having a huge bonanza and rights fees and obviously a global viewership, et cetera, we talked about. But it all requires innovation and fresh thinking, not just simply producing great content. It has to be seen with a mass audience or with an audience that's willing to pay for it. And it's a direct-to-consumer world. So put your CEO hats on, and you have constituents and shareholders, and you have to generate a profit. And a profit that grows more than the averages, and hopefully double digits. How do you do that in this environment? Isn't it almost impossible? Isn't it saturated? Double-digit growth in media. <laughs> Listen to this guy. You came um, to the right place. <laughs> <laughs> Candidly, I think Ken is on to a lot of this. Unquestionably, there is a transformation afoot. But I, I think what you said is ultimately, I mean, just sort of Occam's razor, content wins. And part of that means live content, but also part of that means doing things that no one else is doing. It's not direct-to-consumer, but there's a reason why 60 Minutes can still draw 16, 20 million viewers every Sunday. Well, you could watch it on Roku it's John or, or CBS well, All Access. Yeah, or, or download the app. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of ways. Yeah, yeah. less moon visit. I mean, there are a number of ways to do it uh, apart from, hey, it's 8 o'clock Eastern. Uh, games will be seen at the regular season. To me, it's just the most important thing. And I come from the edit side and luckily can leave it to people like Ken to figure out how to make it profitable. But just do things authoritatively and originally. And whether it's investigative reporting at Sports Illustrator, whether it's 60 Minutes piece you're not going to get anywhere else, whether it's the live content and the analysis at Tennis Channel, 
I do think that people will just find the best stuff and the best stuff will differentiate itself. Really? So John Wertheim is a brand. You've gone out from under Sports Illustrated and now you do 60 Minutes, you have book publications, you write op-eds, you do films, you have podcasts, podcasts. you are a producer of content and you hedge your bets or you go everywhere the consumer is. But if I said to you, here's Amazon, wouldn't you just prefer to be on Amazon's platform or Netflix's platform and make it a whole lot easier? At some level, that perhaps is where the uh, train is going, but I, th- I don't think we're quite there yet. The secret to all this from a content producer standpoint is that all these platforms are fun. The notion of only doing one thing, to me, quite apart from just being impractical today, it just doesn't sound half as fun as doing different things. Then the skill set you need for 60 Minutes might not be the skill set for doing a podcast or writing a book, but to me, it almost makes media... More fun. But no, I, I think whether it's Amazon or whether it's independently, going to where the consumer is. They ain't going to their mailbox necessarily once a week, and they're not perhaps sitting down the way they once did at 8 o'clock on Sundays to watch 60 Minutes. If you can go where they are, though, I just operate on the belief that the best content will ultimately win. Well, if you know someone at Amazon, uh, yeah, who knows? We, 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 uh, first of all, I'm not sure that it's an either-or question, yeah, yeah, right? Exactly. And I think that's a, a bit of a, that's black and white, and there's a thousand shades of gray in how to do this right. I've done it at a lot of different places. We thought this was going to be a relatively short-term venture, and every day we wake up here going into our 14th year, I can't believe I'm saying this, feeling like it's day one. Because as we look at the landscape, whether it's platforms, whether it's geography, whether it's beyond platform, the way people use the content itself. I don't know if we were lucky or good, but I think we chose right. And perhaps the reasons is we started with the very brash notion that we could launch an independent cable channel in a world of large verticals, rooted in the fact that we thought there were unique attributes within this sport that would break through regardless. But you wouldn't do that today. Well, I wouldn't do it that way today. I'd do it the way we're doing it now. Now, the good news is, in fact, I might have been happy to not necessarily put in those 13 years if I had all the knowledge that I gained over those 13 years. But regardless, the point is that we've tried to look around the corner because we had to, because we were crafty. We are the scrappy independent. And by the way, no matter how big we get, we're in 60 million homes now. We're on track to be 70, 75, just on the traditional pay TV side, we were in the very first tranche of HDTV because we knew it would transform the way people could enjoy the experience. We were in the very, very first authenticated Mm -hmm. packages for cable operators and for satellite distributors because we knew that people could enjoy the sport better. Tennis is about continuity. And you're right about sports, but the Achilles heel of most sports is there ain't that much of it. And so you can drive a disproportionate price for a package of a few football games or hockey games or whatever it is, because it's so scarce and because it represents plutonium in our universe. But people enjoy things in continuity. And for us to be able to tell a story that starts on a Monday and ends on a Sunday of a tournament or a player within that tournament, or a number of tournaments going on simultaneously that all lead from January to the end of the year in, as you said, a tapestry of what is the sport of tennis across all platforms. We're not trying to figure out what to do with our OTT strategy. We needed OTT because when we're at Roland Garros, we had to show you 10 courts. The beauty is that We look at it the other way, which is the technology has finally caught up with the sport because it's a sport that 
has to be enjoyed in the continuum in order to understand the battle and the journey that Evan's favorite player has gone through to get to today here at Wimbledon or the finals of the US Open. They didn't just show up. They've been working all year and everything had an impact on it. And all these platforms allow us to do it socially. They allow you to connect with that player and who they are as a person. If you want to check out Nick Kyrgios' shoes or his stats, or you want to go back and see old matches on VOD, whatever it is, we've actually said, here's a connected ecosystem, platform agnostic, that you can watch the best stuff live and you can tune into Tennis Channel and you are pretty much guaranteed 95% of the time of finding the most important match in the world live on our air. This is the takeaway. This is the life-changing idea for media that I'm drawing on what you guys have said, which is you have to be willing to try different things in today's environment, but you have to be able to have a brand definition that stands for something that's credible and creates affinity with a diverse audience. And whether it's an ambassador for tennis, which obviously you are, Ken, or it's a producer of content that is edgy and unique and interesting, which you are, John, you have to have some definition of what you're about and then pivot off of that into a multi-platform environment that continues to innovate and change. And that is Media 2.0 here, right? Absolutely. You solved it. Done. <laughs> you got to put it to work now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but you've got a lot of people with a lot of money chasing that now. And I'm not sure they have that focus. They're saying, bring me a hit. And creating something great just doesn't work that way. You have to start with the right. idea. And as yeah. you always say, Aria, and one great 99-minute film that John and the team have put together can change the world we're sitting here trying to also do it every day. It's not easy to find those gems. And when you do, you ride them and you build them. Evan, any, any other questions or parting words for John or Ken or the overall audience we have here? If in singles you don't have a partner, but in doubles, how do you think differently if you're playing singles rather than doubles? That's a great question. So a singles court is different from a doubles court? So symbolically, they're not even the same size, but it's also a much different way of thinking about your playing and thinking about your sport. You're sharing everything with a partner. So if you lose, I was really good today, but Ken Solomon kept missing all the shots. If you win, you got to share the credit. But I think it used to be that singles players would play both, right? Martina Navratilova, who we work with, would win the singles and she'd win the doubles too. You don't have that and so mix. much today and the mix. She was very versatile. But I think that you don't have that in part because of logistics, right? You can't be in two places at once. But I also think players today have to choose one or the other. Some of them prefer playing with someone else. They like the collaboration. I don't know if you have that in school where, hey, group projects are kind of fun. I know my kids, they don't really like group projects that much. You've got to wait and Dennis didn't do his homework and... Charlie forgot to bring the lab report, they would rather do it themselves. So I think there's very much a certain type of person that plays doubles now and a certain different type that plays singles. You almost have to choose one or the other. It's a great, great question that I bet a lot of tennis fans uh, haven't spent much time thinking about. John, the way you're describing it reminds me that you have this phenomenal children's book called The Rookie (laughs) Bookie, correct? It's a big hit in our household and uh, you have a knack for this. There's a lot of people that think that, and I happen to be one of them, that on a technical basis, doubles is actually a better television sport. It's faster. There's more geometry to it. 
There's just more, there more ele- there, there's about. a lot yeah. going on. But when you get four players up at the net and it's going fast and you can see how they're thinking and they're trying to anticipate, it's really cool. The difference is, as John said, that the sport's so rigorous physically that it just became impossible to play two events. You didn't want to risk your singles title and not let down your doubles partner because you went, I can't play two in a row. I may just not have the juice to be able to get through it considering I've been playing for two weeks straight. But one thing that's really different is, and to the core of it, is that tennis always teaches you a lesson. And the lessons of individuality, which we talked about in singles, in doubles, you have to be a good partner. And there's only one other partner. It's not like a team where you can kind of look around for who to blame or to talk to one guy about another guy or a woman about another woman. You have to learn how to share, how to silently understand how to move and how to make plays. And in that is a great bond. Anyone that's ever played doubles and won with a partner knows how great it feels. And you feel like you're bonded together for life. So it's kind of the opposites. Well, it's apropos because I think this is our first Kindred Cast doubles match. There we go. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah, for the podcast. Yes. <laughs> uh, you guys are a great team. Thank you for being here. We all have to get to the matches now. Lucky us. You guys will be working. <laughs> I'll be enjoying, but really appreciate it. It was a great conversation and a great sport. And may you continue to innovate and continue to have success with the content. Thanks so much. Thanks. It was a pleasure doing this, Ari. Always family with Lion Tree. Thank you. Thanks, Evan. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.